If you're looking for something to do this May 30th through June 2nd, why don't you join us at CrimeCon in Nashville, Tennessee? We can all rub elbows with people like John Walsh, John Douglas, and Chris Hansen. Come and visit Murder in the Rain on Podcast Row, where we'll be sitting next to some of our own favorite podcasts. You can get 10% off your tickets by using code RAIN at checkout at CrimeCon.com. Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic, personalized closet. The styles show up to your door in as little as two days. And when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out and choose more styles. Like many of you, my personal style has evolved over the years. But if I want to try something new, sometimes it's hard to know what pieces will work for me. Rather than going to the mall for hours or spending too much money on pieces I might not like, Armoire allows me to rent high-quality designer clothes for any occasion. I can try styles I never considered before without worrying about the store's return policy, like a pair of faux leather pants for my new band. Of course, all of this sounds great, but what's even better is that it's a woman-founded business. You benefit from finding the perfect outfits, all while supporting a business that was built by women just like us. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murder in the rain. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murder in the rain, one word, to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom or the motherly figure in your life? Let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send your recipient a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about, for example, your mom's life or any custom questions that you want to ask. And then she can either type her response or record her voice. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories forever. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Obviously, we love anything surrounding storytelling. It's what we do. So to be able to gift this to my mom, to not only hear her stories, but the stories of my grandparents and other family members, it will create a cherished gift for all of us to enjoy. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN for 10% off today. This is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. 
Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. In the 1970s and 80s, a serial rapist plagued Portland, Oregon, and surrounding areas. His modus operandi was that he would jog around neighborhoods in East Portland, scouting for potential victims. When he found a girl or woman that captured his attention, he would watch them, sometimes for days, waiting for the perfect moment to strike. When she was alone, he would break in, attack her, hiding his face, and rape her before slipping back out into the night. It would take nearly a decade for police to capture him, and 36 years later, the survivors of the Portland jogger rapists still band together in search of justice. We're merely weeks away from his release from prison, and I want to be sure you know who could be moving in next door to you. I was fortunate to be joined by Danielle Tudor and Tiffany Edens, two of the nine girls who were raped by Richard Gilmore, the jogger rapist. They will help me to share their stories with you today. In November of 1979, Danielle Tudor was 17 years old and a senior at David Douglas High School. Her time was divided between school, a part-time job, and theater. She not only loved watching musicals on TV, but she had recently been asked to be the student director for The Music Man, which would be playing in the newly built David Douglas Performing Arts Center. This should have been a year full of opportunity and excitement, but unfortunately, one night would cause her unimaginable pain. Here's Danielle's story. Um, so I was a, a senior in high school, just, you know, getting started on that senior year. I was 17 years old. And uh, one evening I'd actually gotten home from work. I had a seasonal job working at Fred Meyers and my parents were going out for the evening and they asked if I wanted to go. And it was a Sunday evening. The next day was a holiday. It was Veterans Day. And we were having rehearsals at the Performing Arts Center. So I knew I had to be there early. So I said, you know, I'll, I want to stay home and I want to go to bed early. So as I was home, I was actually uh, down in our family room, which it was kind of a, it was halfway underground, our basement. So it was, the house was like a tri-level. And so I was down there watching TV and we had a little dog at the time. It was a little poodle and she was sitting on my lap. And so I was just sitting there. I was actually, I remember I was watching The King and I because I absolutely loved musicals and I had never seen that one. And so I wanted to, to, to watch it. So that's what I was doing. And, you know, as I sat there, I, I remember I kept thinking, I need to go to bed. I have to get up early. I need to go to bed, but I still just sat there and watched the movie. And as East County can get, it was, it started to get windy that evening. And I heard a noise outside our basement window, but I didn't think too much of it, you know, with the wind and stuff. And so as I was watching the movie where the TV was set up was almost in view of where the door was as well. And I happened to notice that the handle on the door from our basement that led out to the garage, that it was twisting. And I remember looking at that thinking, the knob is twisting. And I knew that door could be kicked open. I knew that uh, from growing up there and 
being locked out of the house. So I, I knew, you know, that it could be kicked open. And no sooner did I have that thought when the person on the other side of the door kicked it open. And there he stood, he kicked open the door, all the lights were on in the basement. And so there he stood and he didn't have anything over his face. And he stood there, I stared at him and he stared at me and we both just froze. And then it was like in an instant, he turned around and he was headed back out to the garage. And in my mind, I thought he was leaving. And so I ran up two flights of stairs uh, to my parents' bedroom and I didn't turn on any lights in their room. And at that time, you know, we didn't have 911. So I called the operator and then she connected me with law enforcement. So I sat there on the edge of my parents' bed, talking with them, telling them somebody had kicked in our door. I didn't know who it was. And I was really scared. And they kept trying to calm me down. And I just, I, I still remember to this day saying, when are you going to get here? When are you going to get here? And so um, as I sat there, our dog started to growl. And so I told the person on the other end of the line, I said, I think he's come back. The dog is growling. And they were just like, no, no, he's not coming back. He knows you're there. You know, he was there to burglarize. So he's not coming back. And so I went to peek around the corner of my parents' bedroom door and I could see the staircase coming up. And when I peeked around the corner, I saw him coming up the stairs and he had come back in with something over his face and then he had gotten this large stick from our garage. What he had been doing is he was listening for my voice. And so he was following that as he had come back into the house. So that's uh, how he found me in my parents' bedroom. And so as soon as he saw me peeking around the door, he just bolted up that staircase. And I ran to my parents' nightstand trying to turn on the light. And as soon as I got it on, he swung that stick and, and took out that lamp. So as he started swinging that stick, I, I ducked not to get hit. And eventually he dropped that stick and he just basically grabbed me and pushed me up against the wall in my parents' bedroom and started hitting me. And I was screaming at the top of my lungs. And as I was screaming, he began punching me more and telling me to shut up or he was going to kill me. And he literally pulled me off the wall and threw me onto my parents' bed. And it really wasn't until he started to grope at my body and started to rip my clothing that I even realized why he had come back. And then my fear level just shot through the roof and I began to scream and, and fight him uh, again. And then he started to beat me again. And once again, you know, told me, you know, stop it or I'm going to hurt you. And, and so we, we fought and rolled around and ended up on the floor of my parents' bedroom. And he had grabbed then the bedspread off my parents' bed and covered my face with it. And he had gotten my clothes off. And so it was there actually the safest place that I knew was my parents' bedroom. And to this day, I think that's why I ran to their room for safety. 
but it was there in my parents' bedroom that he raped me. And eventually he did get up and he left. And I ran to my bedroom and grabbed my robe and headed out the front door. And it was as I was headed out the front door that I actually ran into law enforcement. And it it was a woman officer. And she told me she had a hard time finding our house. So she could have been there sooner, but she had a hard time finding where we lived. She went uh, through the house, you know, with me. And of course he had gone. And she was the one that actually took me to the hospital for a rape kit. And while I was there, she then called my sister. And then my sister met me at the hospital. And when we were done with the rape kit, law enforcement wanted to talk to me while it was still, you know, fresh on my mind. And they wanted to get a composite sketch. So we worked on that that night at the hospital. And then finally, when we were done with that, then my sister took me home. And when we got home and pulled into our cul-de-sac, I could see all these cars at our house. And my sister had called all my brothers and sisters. I was the last one living at home because I was the youngest, but I had uh, two brothers and two sisters. And so they were all at the house. And I'll never forget coming in the door and there they all sat. And I wasn't even, I didn't even know what I was supposed to say. And I didn't say anything. I went upstairs and, and took a shower. And then I went to my bedroom and I basically laid in my bedroom in the dark, just, you know, sobbing, trying to uh, comprehend everything that had happened that night. And, um, you know, it was at uh, that point, you know, as I was sobbing, it was at that point that I just, I, I said a, a real simple prayer and I just asked God to really help me get through this because I didn't, I didn't see how I would be able to. I was that girl that had dreamed of the day she would get married. In fact, I was one of those girls that probably had her wedding all planned, just didn't know who she was going to marry. And um, and as part of that, I was saving myself for marriage. So I just, I it just everything had been taken from me that night, and I just, I didn't know. I didn't know what my life would be after that. And I just, I couldn't imagine getting through it. But in that simple prayer, I just, I just said, if you somehow help me get through this, I will help other rape survivors because I know if you can help me get through this, I know I can help them get through it. And that prayer was long forgotten (laughs) and really came to fruition and was answered almost 30 years later. And I almost missed it because I originally said no at that first request, but I was victim number three in my neighborhood. There were two victims before me and had not heard anything, you know, about what was happening in our neighborhood before that. But I was victim number three. Victim number four was actually just over a month, I think, after my rape, 
And law enforcement came back to me at, at that point, trying to see if they could get more information from me. But, um, and I remember having to listen to the, the tape recording of my conversation with law enforcement. And at the very end of that conversation, there was a blood curdling scream. And that, that did me in, that did my mom in because my mom was there with me and we were both listening to it. And it just, that blood curdling scream was just, it was too much. It's just too much. So after me, there was uh, uh, the fourth victim and then there ended up being eight victims in my neighborhood. And during that time, law enforcement really started to up their, you know, their patrolling and and everything. And they actually took the composite sketch and went door to door in our neighborhood with it. And they actually, one of the detectives kept it with him as they upped the patrols in our area. And one of those times while he was patrolling, he actually pulled someone over and he kind of checked his record and couldn't hold him on anything, but he decided because he looked so much like the composite sketch, he decided to write his name and his license number and his date of birth on that composite sketch. But that composite sketch sat after that. There, there wasn't any action, no further action uh, into Richard Gilmore at that time. And then when they went door to door, they actually went to his house. And I remember the detective telling me that they went to a house and a woman answered the door and they, they gave her the story and, and told her, you know, to, to beware that they're looking for this guy and he's out there and he's committing these rapes in her neighborhood. And the woman who answered the door after they gave her the information, she said, Richard, there's a rapist on the loose and he still, and he looks a lot like you. And amazingly, it was never followed up on, and it actually was him. That was his house, and that was his mom that made that comment. But consequently, at that time, while he was jogging our neighborhood and and raping young girls and young women, he had a girlfriend at that time as well. When she heard that there was a rapist on the loose, she decided Richard Gilmore had a younger sister. And so she decided to take it upon herself to go there every day so that when his sister got off the bus at the bus stop, she would be there and walk home with her. And then she would be there until someone got home because there was a rapist on the loose and never realizing that it was her boyfriend and the man that she would actually later marry as well. But um, I think for our area, as far as the composite sketch and the evidence that we had, there was a fingerprint from what we know to be his first rape anyway in our neighborhood. Those pieces of evidence just stayed on file. And sometime in the 80s, it had to be somewhere maybe between 84 and 86, they were uh, kind of downsizing. And so they had all these files. And and one of the detectives that had worked our cases had had said, I don't really want to get rid of all this information. I want to be able to go through it and, and see what's in here. 
So <laughs> lo and behold, October of 1986, the Draga Rapist has still not been identified or caught. And in October of 1986, the detective that had all the files decided, huh, here's the Draga Rapist file. I wonder if we ever caught this guy. So he calls the other detective that had worked our cases, who had now moved out to the Gresham Police Department and the Gresham area. And he says, did we ever get this guy? And he's like, I don't think we did. But, you know, the other detective tells him about the composite sketch and got his curiosity. And he goes, well, what's the name that you have on that sketch? And so the detective that was still in the Portland area told him the name, Richard Troy Gilmore. And the detective that now lived in Gresham goes, huh, that's interesting. I've got someone that lives on my street with that same name, but I'm helping him get into law enforcement. So I'm sure it's not him. And that pretty much ends the conversation. And you're in October of 1986. So now enters Tiffany Edens. A little over seven years later, and just a few miles to the east in Troutdale, lived Tiffany Edens, a 13-year-old flourishing dancer. Tiffany loved performing ballet and jazz, and at the young age of 11, she even started assisting her teachers with their other classes. But on a winter night in 1986, her life as she knew it would be shattered. Here's Tiffany's story. I was raped December 5th, 1986. I was, I had stayed after school to do homework with friends and watch a wrestling match because I had a crush on one of the boys that were wrestling. I was having a good time. It was a Friday, so I was excited that it was my weekend. My friend Celeste's mom drove me home after the um, wrestling match. I called my friend Tisha. Um, we had gone to the same grade school, but we went to two different middle schools. And so we made plans for um, a sleepover and movies and pizza. And then I called my mom to see if that was okay. And she said, yes, as long as you get your chores done. So like any other normal 13-year-old, I turned on the stereo and pushed play on the Depeche Mode cassette and um, started to clean my house. Um, I had every single light on because in December in the Pacific Northwest, it's very dark out. I probably was kind of cleaning sporadically in between dance moves, um, going from room to room. And then I went into the kitchen and I was cleaning the, the kitchen and, um, the stereo turned off. And I was more concerned that I was going to get in trouble by my mom for um, maybe playing the music too loud. And so I finished up with the dishes and I can still remember opening the cabinet under the sink and getting the can of Indust or Pledge or whatever it was. You know, I was doing some thinking and that was the last moment in my life before terror hit me. I was still the 13-year-old goofy Tiffany 
in those last few seconds. And I didn't, for some reason, I didn't turn on the light in the back family room where the stereo was. And I used to think maybe that would have saved me, but I now know that Gilmore couldn't help himself and nothing probably was going to save me. When I walked through the doorway, all the light was coming from behind me. And so I could see this figure or somebody, something holding the quilt that my grandma and great grandma made for me in front of them. Very quickly, I realized that it was nobody that I knew. And he pushed me from that room to the dining room. It was probably, I want to say, five, six feet. And he pushed me and I hit our dining room table and I was just the right height that it hit kind of in my low back. He proceeded to wrap this quilt around my head over and over and over. And I kept asking, who are you? Who are you? I kicked, I punched, I scratched, but there was nothing I could do at 13. I was only 90 pounds. I can remember his grip on me was that of like, you would think of like a snake around its prey. Like I could not move. And um, I know that chairs were being knocked down and eventually we landed on the other side of the table um, on the floor. He kept telling me, shut up or I'm going to kill you. Shut up or I'm going to kill you. Stop fighting me. Stop fighting me. He made these weird comments of, I'm not going to rape you. Shut up or I'm going to kill you. He sat, he sat over my stomach and he ripped open my shirt and ripped my training bra. While he's doing this, He's asking me, how old are you? Do you like school? Do you have a boyfriend? Don't worry, you're not going to get pregnant. Just try to imagine, like, I have this blanket around my head and all I can hear is my heartbeat. And it's like you can hear your heartbeat on the outside of your body. I like to think that it was divine intervention that God gave me the words to think of this, but because I didn't know that he had been watching me for 30-ish minutes as I was cleaning the house, but I interrupted his huge plethora of questions and said, my mom's going to be home any minute. Because he saw me on a phone, on the phone, he didn't have any reason to think that I wasn't telling the truth. And he said, where does your mom work? And I said, first interstate Gresham branch. Really, she worked in Clackamas, and that's 45 minutes away from my house. And so he quickly um, left. And I could hear, and he said, stay there, I'm going to kill you. And then I could hear him walking out of my house onto our deck. And I threw that blanket off of my head 
And it, and I call it like wolf vision because it was, the lights were so bright. It was, they were just intensely bright. And I grabbed that blanket. I was half naked. The shirt that was on me and the bra was just ripped, but my pants were off. My shoes were off. And I had to unlock my front door to get out. And I remember the ground was so cold and wet and I went running directly over to my friend's house and banging on their door. And I think I was screaming, he's going to kill me. He's going to kill me. They called the police. The police came. Um, and it's kind of crazy because the officer's name that was questioning me was Walker and the police officer that Gilmore befriended or friended or whatever on his neighborhood was officer Wallacher. And as my mom puts it, my mom shows up in our neighborhood. There's police at every single outlet of our street. And there are tons of police um, at my house. My mom thought that I was kidnapped because she worked for a bank. And then um, they walked my mom over to the Kings's house. And um, she looked at me and I just started crying. I was able to identify what he was wearing, his hair, his face, you know, and I only saw his face in like split second moments, you know, because he had this blanket wrapped around my head. Um, I did punch him in the face when he was trying to rip my shirt. So I knew that he had like a scraggly beard. Um, and I could tell that he was wearing like a jogging suit because it would swish, swish, swish. Um, as he was attacking me. Um, and then the police took me and my mom down to the hospital to get the rape exam and the rape kit. And that was, that was terrifying in itself. I'd never had a pap smear or, you know, I'd never done that. And so um, they had to collect my spit and um, they also gave me a, a morning after pill so that I wouldn't get pregnant. Um, and I remember my dad, Ken, showed up. My dad, Steve, showed up. My granddad showed up to the hospital. And they were very concerned because all I could do was laugh. And um, the advocate was like, she's in serious shock. You know, she doesn't know how to handle herself my family takes me back home it was so surreal I didn't know you don't know how to um how to process it I didn't know how to process it like many cases there seems to have been moments where someone was on to this guy but it wasn't until he victimized Tiffany that police got their big break a detective long got put onto my case and he had put out a request to all police stations in the area about this MO. And it was um, Officer Donahue, Mike Donahue with Multnomah County Sheriff's Office that had the, the composite and Gilmore's name on the back of that composite that Danielle was able to provide. At my scene, um, there was an officer smoke and um, 
I now have smoke the third. I name my German shepherd male smoke <laughs> in honor of officer smoke because um, they had to lift him over my fence. We had a six foot fence, had to lift him over the fence so that he could stay on this track. And they tracked his scent um, approximately two miles. And as the police started putting things together um, where smoke stopped, um, you could see Gilmore's backyard through the field where Officer Smoke had lost his scent. Officer um, Donahue informed Long that there had been this history with this Richard Troy Gilmore and that he was applying to become police. And so Detective Long checked and Gilmore had been trying to become a Gresham police officer when he raped me. So because they had a job opening still, they could legally ask him to come in, give his prints. And I have the document where Detective Long called Gilmore to do this. And Gilmore was very nervous and was like, what's this for? What's this for? And Detective Long, he was so cool. He was like, well, you're the one who applied for the job. So if you don't want to do it, you know, I'll just say that you refuse to come in. And Gilmore was like, oh, oh, it's for the, oh, it's for that, huh? And Detective Long was like, well, yeah, you know? And so Gilmore was like, well, I'll wait. I want to wait until my wife gets home. He goes in, he does a fingerprint and they tape a conversation with him. They were able to connect his fingerprint because, um, he also took my light bulb out of my backyard and they found a fingerprint, partial fingerprint on it. They were able to connect his fingerprints to that and to, to the first rape that we know of that he committed. I think the next day I came in there, my dad took me in there and um, I listened to his voice. I said, yeah, that's him. And then I had to look at all these photos for about three minutes and I said, yes, that's him. There was kind of some like debate on how and when to pick him up. The DA wanted more evidence, but they were also very concerned that he was going to rape again very soon because that's his MO. Once he starts, he starts doing it pretty rapidly in succession. He was arrested December 19th, 1986, two days before my 14th birthday. Five months later, the trial started. That was pretty horrible for me, too, because not only had I just been raped, but every time that we would go down there to get started, Des Connell, his attorney, would um, uh, say that they weren't ready. And so um, that happened several times. And that's when I think um, I got into addiction. And I think that's when it started because I would get these horrible headaches. And so my mom would take at, you know, my mom would say take Advil, but instead of two, I would take four, you know, just thinking, I don't know, trying to get rid of these headaches. And so, um, and then the trial happened and I never got to meet Danielle. I never got to meet any of the survivors. Um, we were all pretty separated. I knew about them, but you know, I didn't, I didn't ever know them until later. You know, it's interesting. You talk about the 
you know, day that he was arrested. It's interesting because when they were planning his arrest and they didn't want to wait because his wife was going to be out of town again. And I remember uh, Russ Ratto, I remember him telling me that when he met with law enforcement and they were trying to figure out what was going to be the best way to arrest him, said they brought all these files. And that is where we get that law enforcement felt that he was responsible for anywhere from 50 to 100 rapes in and around the city of Portland in places where he had either lived or worked. It was because they brought all these files of unsolved cases, even though the statute of limitations had already passed, um, it was their way of like, this is how dangerous we think this guy is. And I think that really motivated him to, to, to get him as quickly as they could. The day after he was arrested, uh, someone from law, law enforcement took him on, on what I refer to as the rape tour. They took him through our area. And as they drove through our area, Richard Gilmore pointed out uh, the houses where he had broken into and raped young women or young girls. And he was actually able to kind of give them the circumstances around it and, and all of that. After his arrest, Gilmore continually denied raping Tiffany Edens, even claiming that the night the rape occurred, he had been at work and then out at a bar with friends. But in a scene straight out of SVU, a detective slammed down a photo of Tiffany right in front of him, pointed at it and said, Tiffany Eden said she saw you. Then they reminded him that they can lift fingerprints and match them to people. And the man who raped Tiffany had left a fingerprint behind. That's when Gilmore knew he was done for and said, yes, I was there. You probably found my fingerprint on her back door. Do you think he was denying that because she was so young? I don't think so. I I. He was just trying to get away with what he could. Exactly. Okay. I honestly don't think age mattered to him. I mean, I think it did. I think they mentioned later in the interview, like the girls got younger and younger as he got older. Uh, but to him, I don't think. I just mean as far as um, prosecution. You know, if he was like, oh, I, I did this, these yeah. other ones over here, but they were of age. So maybe the penalty was different. No, my gut says no to yeah. that. I, I think he just kind of clumps them all together. But you know, we'll never know. Or at least I won't know unless we can get those court transcripts, which I wasn't able to get in time. Boo. <laughs> Danielle mentioned that after Richard Gilmore's arrest, police drove him around her neighborhood in East Portland, the same neighborhood where eight rapes occurred in the late 70s. During that ride along, Gilmore pointed out houses, described how he broke in, the girls he raped, and explained a little bit about what went on before the break-ins, the voyeurism and the planning. He admitted that he would jog throughout the neighborhood scouting potential victims and the homes they lived in. Often, he would watch the victims through their windows days prior to the attacks. That's what happened to Tiffany Edens. Gilmore watched her through her windows on December 3rd, but when he couldn't find the perfect time to attack, he came back to her house the next day when she was alone. Detectives and the DA knew that Gilmore was a highly dangerous serial rapist. Unfortunately, the law was working against them. Tiffany Edens was the ninth known victim in a series of serial rapes. Unfortunately, eight of those rapes could not be prosecuted. At the time, there was a three-year statute of limitation in place for rape. 
even though those eight women, including Daniel Tudor, would not see justice for their specific rape, they would be able to help put him behind bars. Uh, just a clarification on the series of serial rapes. Does that mean that he, it wasn't like one, one like there were, where there were pauses when he wouldn't be doing it? I believe so. I think it's similar to a serial killer where there's like a cooling off period. I think he would do several rapes in close succession and then have a break and then do it again. So I think that's what they mean. Almost like a cluster of occurrences. And they were saying like his they were worried because his wife was leaving town. So was that something that that possibly was when he was doing it? Yeah. So So she'd leave for work or family or whatever. And then he would take that opportunity. And then exactly. I think that was part of their fear is him being alone. Not only did they get to come in for a lineup and identify their rapist by both looks and voice, they would also have a chance to speak to Gilmore's violent behavior in court where they were allowed to testify when Gilmore was prosecuted for raping Tiffany Edens. Now, I don't think you're going to find this shocking, but Tiffany told me during our call that at court, Gilmore's attorney pulled some pretty shitty tactics. Can you guess what they were? Um, I'm going to start with victim blaming for 200. Ding, ding, ding. You got that right. He claimed that she was somehow enticing Gilmore or luring, luring him to her because she was dancing in the window. Yeah. Um, he shouldn't have been watching a 13 year old dance. I know it's, he can't control himself. It's so disgusting. Now, luckily, they had an excellent judge and the judge shut it down pretty hard. They're like, nope. We're not going to go down that line of questioning. It's bad enough that that happens in court, that that's even allowed to say, you know, oh, the victim brought it. But a themselves. child. But an under eight like that should not be permissible. I And I think that's exactly what it was. He did not allow it. Good. Gilmore was ultimately found guilty in 1987 for the rape of Tiffany Edens. He went to prison on four charges, burglary one, two counts of sex abuse one and rape one. The judge in the case went with the harshest sentencing he could for the charges at hand, and he ended up sentencing him to a minimum 30 years with a 60-year maximum, which was pretty good at the time. And considering it was just one victim, they couldn't use the other victims. But of course, in 1988, one year later, the Oregon Parole Board cut Gilmore's sentence in half, even after reviewing his mental evaluation that said he had a, quote, mental or emotional disturbance, deficiency, condition, or disorder, predisposing him to the commission of any crime to a degree rendering the inmate a danger to the health or safety of others. Cool. I know. The board believed that, quote, the sentence was not appropriate. It wasn't an appropriate penalty. And the minimum sentence was not necessary to protect the public. Like, I don't know how they got from point A to point B on that. A year later. He had he wasn't even a year into a sentence. Danielle and Tiffany believe they made that decision after neglecting to review all of the records. You know, the ones that would show that he had committed nine rapes and had watched through a window. Voyeurism. Children, high school children. Yeah. So let's let's count that right now. So he's raping. He's being voyeuristic and he's preying on children, making him a pedophile. Right. Yeah. Keep those in mind for later. Gilmore requested parole in 2001, 2003, and in 2005. All of those requests were denied. But in September of 2007, he became eligible once again, and the board approved his release. The problem was they never notified his victim that his parole hearing was going to take place. 
Due to a coincidence or divine intervention, if you will, Tiffany's mother called the parole board for an update on him, and she learned that they had just approved him for parole a week prior and that he would be let out in a matter of months. Her family was understandably pissed, and they fought it. After multiple requests for a new hearing and ultimately threatening the board with a media field day, they were able to convince the board to have a second hearing so that Tiffany could testify. And that hearing was scheduled for October of 2007. Quick question, going back to the parole board from a year after, what did they change the sentence to if they said that that was too extreme? I think they just cut it in half. So instead of the 30-year minimum, it was 15. Oh, okay. 15 with 30. Right. Okay. I think. I couldn't find the exact detail on it. Still, it it was not sufficient. Absolutely not. This was an opportunity for Tiffany to share her story with the parole board, as well as allowing Richard Gilmore to speak to his own remorse and answer parole board questions. In addition, findings from his psychological evaluation were shared. The evaluations came from two doctors. The first is Dr. Robert Stuckey. He had come to the conclusion that Gilmore had an antisocial personality disorder and was a continued threat to society. The second doctor, Dr. Gary McGuffin, claimed that Gilmore suffered from severe emotional disturbance and posed a threat to society. He would be a continued risk. Both evaluations were very much in line with another clinical psychologist who had evaluated him the year prior. So even though the year prior, his evaluation said he was a threat, they were still going to let him out. Very cool. At the hearing, Gilmore claimed to be rehabilitated through hard work and therapy. He claimed to have remorse and even apologized to Tiffany through his tears. He spent four hours talking, but Tiffany was only granted three minutes. But like a true murder in the rain gal, she told them she would talk as long as she wanted, and she did. Good. After over 30 minutes of deliberation, the board came to a decision. They spoke to the room and said Gilmore was a danger to the health of others, but he can be controlled with the right people supervising him. So they determined that he would be granted release in January of 2008. I would think the people would be like prison guards. Those would be the people that could look after him. (laughs) Yeah, you'd think. So an admitted serial rapist is about to leave prison where everyone, everyone has agreed he's a continued threat. What could they possibly do to stop it? Well, Tiffany Edens went to war. And I didn't know what we were going to do. So myself and the Multnomah McKinney DA's office, I remember going to the Multnomah McKinney DA's office and there was all these brainiac attorneys sitting around me and they said, are you willing to sue the Oregon Parole Board, Board of Parole? Are you willing to put your face so to speak, the poster child of a rape victim publicly. And I said, yes, because what else could I do? This man was going to be released in just three months and had not even served the amount of time that the judge that was presiding over the case 
gave him the minimum. My family and I, we embarked on this lawsuit and this endeavor. It was, it was intense. And uh, Doug Balouf, um, he was one of my attorneys with Meg Garvin and Aaron Jones from National Crime Victims Law Institute. They represented me. Uh, Doug had said, this is unprecedented. This has never been done in the state of Oregon. A victim has never sued the Oregon Parole Board. And simultaneously, Multnomah County DA's office was suing them also. Tiffany's lawsuit eventually resulted in a judge in Marion County blocking the release, stating that there were multiple procedural errors. For one, not giving the victim notice that there were hearings to grant the man who raped her parole, which was in direct violation of the 1986 Victims' Rights Act. Yet the parole board still believed they had made the right decision in granting him parole. But rather than fight the ruling, they agreed to a new hearing months later. The hearing took place in June of 2008, and multiple rape survivors and their families gathered to speak. It was described as, like Tiffany suing the parole board, unprecedented. At the time, it was the longest-running parole hearing in Oregon history and had the most victims speaking out. Um, I think I talked to Russ maybe a couple days before the parole hearing, and he wanted to know, you know, if I'd come and share my story. And I remember just very quietly, I said, no, I, I, I can't do that. And, and I was looking at my life, you know, I own my own business and, oh, but no one, no one knew me as Danielle Tudor rape victim and neither did my grown sons. So my knee jerk reaction was no, I, I don't I, no, I can't be that person. I don't want to be that person. And um, then the parole hearing happened and I paid attention. I knew what was going on. And I saw you on the news after the parole hearing. And there was something within me that just my heart sank because all of a sudden that prayer came back to me Mm -hmm. or by yourself. And I just thought, what have I done? You know, and I just I thought I have to make this right. And so I called Russ Ratto the day after that parole hearing. And I just told him, I said, I'm so sorry. I made the wrong decision and I will do whatever it is you need me to do. And and we left that that conversation thinking somewhere down the road, you know, and I, I didn't know when I would hear from them again. It was the following week. He called me and he said, would you please share your story with the Oregonian? And he said, we're going to want your name and your picture. I said, I will do whatever it is you need me to do. And that that first interview was actually at his house with the Oregonian. And I remember he handed me my, oh my goodness. He handed me my police report and he said, I want you to look at this. And I looked at it and I read through it. And I didn't know who that girl was anymore. I had distanced myself so far from her and that hurt and that pain. And then all of a sudden there she was again, almost 30 years later. 
and I wasn't sure that I could put me and and that person combine them together and I think that was my fear of coming forward was putting that terrified girl and this grown woman together so we did that interview as you know and and then the next day Gilmore had to be put into protective custody and what that did because I came forward then Colleen did and then Renee did and then each one down the line so that in that month of July of 2008 we had all these victims coming forward sharing their story and what had happened to them and then we got a glimpse as to the enduring effects that he had on our lives. Gilmore lost his bid for parole yet again, and a few weeks after that final parole meeting in 2008, two inmates alerted authorities because they claimed that they had overheard Gilmore threatening to kill Tiffany Edens. This put him right back in law enforcement spotlight for a few months, but no criminal charges were ever filed for that possible threat. Since then, there have also been allegations that a female corrections worker quit her job due to the way he interacted with her. She, it was like describing him as like licking his lips when he Oof. looked at her and just making creepy eye contact. And you can hear that in the Patreon version of the interview. He also apparently made a threat by phone to one of the victims, although I do not know which person that was. In 2009, Tiffany and Danielle helped to push through a bill that would extend the statute of limitations for rape. The statute has changed a few times since the 80s, and it's still something that rape survivors and others are working to extend. Currently, rape in the first degree has a 12-year statute of limitations, and rape in the second degree has a six-year statute of limitations. Or in both cases, if the victim is under 18, they can prosecute any time before the victim turns 30. All of the constant testifying and fighting for victims' rights has an effect on rape survivors. Depression, drug and alcohol abuse, anxiety, PTSD, even suicide are all things that have been experienced by Richard Gilmore's victims. I mentioned to them in the interview that their stories remind me how much we put on survivors to get justice. We have officers, detectives, lawyers, and judges attempting to uphold the law and ensure that perpetrators are punished appropriately, but the sheer number of times these women had to re-traumatize themselves for the parole board, for the media, for me, just so we could hear their story was countless. They do it because they care and they want to protect others, but it comes at a cost. And that's why in 2009, Tiffany took a break from the parole hearings and Danielle took over. Also, how do you feel safe, even though this guy is in prison, you have this group of people that are supposed to be in between. They're supposed to be protecting you. And they're like, oh, we glanced over the paper. He's fine to go. Oh, or, yeah. Or you're like, oh, a uh, word on the street is he's threatening my life because I keep like putting him in jail. And, the, and no one does anything. And then they are like, yeah, we, he's fine to go. Several times they called the parole board three blind mice. And I thought that was very fitting. It's like they only look at the paper in front of them and not the history of yeah. this person, which is 
really sad and unfortunate. And they're and they're fighting to change that. In 2010, Danielle Tudor and Colleen Kelly were the only rape survivors ready to testify in the latest parole hearing. Again, Gilmore's bid was denied and he remained in prison. In 2012, he was again back up for parole, but this time the parole board told Danielle that she wasn't able to testify, claiming that she was not actually a victim. And I suppose that's because he was in prison for the rape of Tiffany Edens and not her rape. Isn't that? And then she set everything on fire. (laughs) Well, so like Tiffany, Danielle and National Crime Victims Law Institute filed a lawsuit before the parole hearing. Their argument was that Danielle was legally allowed to share pertinent information in the hearing and likely learning from what happened with Tiffany Edens, the parole board relented and allowed her to speak. He was yet again denied parole. But side note, at this time, the parole board gained the ability to delay a request for parole for up to 10 years. But that decision has to be unanimous. So when the opportunity arose in the 2012 hearing and they could choose to defer Gilmore's parole for 10 years, two of the members voted to defer it and one opted not to. This resulted in Gilmore's continued request for parole every two years. Did that person ever have to give a reason for that? Oh, I'm sure Tiffany and Danielle could could tell you. They think who, they know who it is. Um, no, I, I don't think so. I don't think they have to explain their reasoning. Cool. However, when it was time for his ninth parole hearing in 2014, Gilmore opted not to apply for parole. Daniel and Tiffany explained that this is likely because he realized that portions of his psychological evaluation would be discussed at his hearing, which would mean it would then become public knowledge. So instead, he stopped applying. Now, this ended up working out for him because eventually the parole board just set his release date. After years of denials, in 2016, the parole board determined that Richard Gilmore would be released in 2023. But... In October of this year, it was announced that after 36 years behind bars, Richard Gilmore would be released early and was officially given a release date of December 16th, 2022. Yes, that that date is just weeks from us right now. If you're listening to this episode, the day it released or the week it released. So there may be some people out there who say, well, he served his sentence. He should be allowed out. Why are we mad about it? There is an entirely different reason you should be outraged. Yes, he did his time and he'll be out soon. And that means he has to register as a sex offender. But that's where the problem lies. Richard Gilmore will be registering as a level one sex offender. That means he's been deemed the lowest risk possible. Based on what? Well, I was just going to think. Do you want to know why? Well, what are you talking about, Emily? We'll start at the beginning. So some of you might not be familiar with the leveling. So let's do like a little master class on sex offender leveling. There are three levels in the state of Oregon, like many states. And let's start at level three. This is the highest risk group, right? These are considered sex maniacs who have a high likelihood of recommitting or the highest of the groups. For example, this guy. Well, let's go down the list of who might fit this, right? We've got sodomy in the first, second, and third degree, rape in the first, second, and third degree, unlawful sexual penetration, kidnapping, sexual abuse in the second degree if the victim is under 16, 
Sexual abuse in the first degree if the victim is under 13 or incest with a minor under 16. Now, if somebody is a level three and they get parole, what happens is people get notified. The person they might be in a relationship with gets notified. The neighbors in the churches nearby get notified. The parks, the schools, daycare centers get notified. Convenience stores, businesses, pretty much anything in the neighborhood gets notified. And that person would have to register every 90 days for the rest of their life. Now, if you ask me, that all sounds pretty familiar, uh, but let's let's go to level two. Also, was there any acknowledgement ever or anything part of his sentence that was related to like breaking and entering? Was that even yeah. part of it? Yeah, he had that burglary one. Okay. Yep. And that, I believe, had a up to 15-year sentence, so it's currently already been served. Right, okay. So the only charge he's still in prison for right now is the rape, is rape one, yeah. All right, so level two are considered sex maniacs with a moderate level of recommitting sex crimes. These people maybe participated in child prostitution, luring a minor, sex abuse in the first degree if a victim is between 13 and 17. Encouraging child sex abuse, custodial sexual misconduct, online sexual corruption of a child. You get the idea. Yeah. So if they get parole, they have to notify their person they're in a relationship with, the neighbors, the churches around, the community parks, schools, child care centers. A lot of the same stuff for that level three. This, the, that's the thing where you see it on TV where it's like they knock on your door and say, hi, I moved into your neighborhood. Like that kind of thing. I don't know if they technically do that or if they just well, send like a fax around. I'm I'm not I'm not up to date what on those that. New telecommunications. I don't think they're gonna make someone like announce himself to his neighbors, but they have to be notified. Now, this type of offender would have to register with local authorities every six months for twenty five years. All right, let's get into level one. This is deemed the lowest level of recommitting sex crimes. What do you think? What kind of crimes maybe would fall I under this category? I think I have a friend who is registered as or was at one point because he peed outside of the Rose Garden. That would be correct. Public indecency, private indecency, sexual abuse in the first degree with an adult victim, sexual abuse in the second degree with a victim 18 years or older, sexual abuse in the third degree, encouraging child sex abuse, sexual misconduct, commercialized sexual solicitation. So these are not these don't sound fitting with him at all. Not even close. And if somebody gets on parole for this, they only have to apply annually for 15 years. And nobody gets notified. The only person would be somebody who lives with them. So like mom, if he moves back in with mom. And you're like, not in this case. I'll be the notifier. That's why we're here. <laughs> so let's let that sink in for a bit. Richard Gilmore, who was convicted of violently raping a 13-year-old child after watching her through her windows and breaking into her home and then admitted to eight additional rapes, several of which were also teens, will be let out of prison as a level one sex offender. Now, you're probably wondering, how did they determine his risk? I'll tell you, it wasn't the crimes. It wasn't the actual crimes itself. It's called a static 99. And this is an evaluation. It's 10 questions. And the answers get a certain number of points. The points are then added together to determine that level of risk. And the lower the points, the lower the risk. So why don't we um, get into this? You're going to love it. Yeah, I love making life decisions that can like alter other people's lives. On a lives. quiz. 
with like the Colbert questionnaire. Oh, imagine like, you're like taking a BuzzFeed quiz and it determines whether you get to be You are free. free. It's crazy. Okay. What is the perpetrator's age at release? So you get one point if you're 18 to 34, zero points if you're 35 to 39, a negative one if you're 40 to 59, and negative three points if you're 60 or older, like Richard Gilmore, who's 63. Perfect. Has the perpetrator lived with a significant other for more than two years? Zero if they have, but one if they haven't. And he has. He was married. While he was in prison? He was, no, like while oh, he was while the, the crimes. crimes. Were... Yeah. Has he ever in his existence lived with somebody? You get a point for being married? Because it shows a committed relationship, apparently. I it know. shows what every serial killer did to pretend they looked like a normal person. Absolutely. All I right. It. Number three. Does the perpetrator have any non-sexual violence convictions that are part of an index cluster? And that you could kind of consider like a spree of crimes, like a bunch of crimes they committed at one time. So zero if no and a one if yes. As far as I know, he does not. Number four, does the perpetrator have any non-sexual violence convictions in general? Zero if no, one if yes. Number five. Has the perpetrator been convicted of other sex offenses? Zero if none. One if one to two offenses. Two if three to five offenses. And six if four or more offenses. Now, had he been convicted, we would have a six-pointer right here. Well, you'd have a three because of his age automatically. Three of those things go away. Yeah, but I'm just saying had he had any convictions, he would have that six. And that would change things, I think. But he was never convicted. Number six, does the perpetrator have four or more separate sentencing dates prior to the last sentence? Zero for three or less and one for four or more. Number seven, any convictions for non-contact sex offenses such as voyeurism, pedophilia? Zero for no, one for yes. Any unrelated victims? Zero for no, one for yes. Unrelated to him or unrelated to each other? Like a family member. Right. Which is interesting. Number nine, any stranger victims? Zero for no, one for yes. And finally, any male victims? Zero for no, one for yes. So if you end up with negative three to three points, you are deemed a level one. If you have four to five points, you're a level two. And if you get six or more, you are a level three. So that's pretty depressing. And most states combine this static 99 with other factors like examining their crimes or having, I don't know, all the psychologists sign off on it. Or have victims speak or even that person who had to quit their job because he was so disgusting. Or in Oregon, you could just have the static 99 and not care about anything else. And I guess I this just illustrates how completely messed up the system is because it's like, on one hand, you go, I get it. You can't you can't fill in the blanks that aren't there. He wasn't charged with the other rapes. He wasn't found guilty of Only them. because our law were so insufficient. Exactly. And so, like, this board has no choice but to look at what's in front of them. And they're overwhelmed anyway. So it's like, OK, let's just do the let's just do the quiz real quick. What's his number? And unfortunately, we're like at a, t- a spot where we can't really do anything. The right. only person he's packing who, his bags, the only person who could change things is our governor who could force them to change it to a level three. Our governor is not willing to do that. 
And so when speaking to Danielle and Tiffany, they were definitely behind another candidate winning because she was going to push forward a bill that was going to change things that would have really helped this. So that was um, interesting for me as someone who heavily leans left to kind of think through bills matter to me. Some candidates support bills I don't believe in and some do and I don't necessarily back them. So it was it was one of those moments where I was really like <laughs> deeply thinking about how I voted and which right. was which was interesting, but there's nothing we can do and that's why we're here today. Because nobody is going to call you and tell you if Richard Gilmore is moving in next door to your daycare that you run. So th- that's why we're here. I want you to share this episode, share our Instagram posts so people can take a look at him and know what to expect you know maybe i'll just uh, shoot an email to kate brown and be like girl you're leaving in a couple weeks don't you want to do some good yeah i would love that if people really feel strongly about this send a letter send an email i don't know what we could achieve but we could try i mean look at what danielle and tiffany have been doing with their entire lives yeah so it's like the least we could do Richard Troy Gilmore will be released from the Columbia River Correctional Institution on December 16th, 2022. He will likely be moving into the Old Town area where he probably has to live in transitional housing for a few months. Then, who knows? But when he moves, we won't be told. He's 63 years old, but that does not mean that he is not a threat. So please be safe and be aware of your surroundings. As a call to action, if you you know, really want to talk to Kate Brown about this before she leaves office, uh, you know, because she'll be out in January. Uh, You can go to Oregon.gov and they do have a little contact form where you can share your opinion or you could call 503-378-4582 and you can make it known that you would like Richard Gilmore to be at the very least, a level three, a level three, if not, uh, you know, reexamine the situation. But I think if enough of us called, perhaps she could at least make a statement on it or acknowledge it, which could then at least let more people know that this is happening. Tiffany and Danielle have worked tirelessly to try to appeal to the governor and have her intervene on their behalf and bump him from a level one to a level three sex offender, which would mean a lot to them and a lot to other people. Level threes have to register as a sex offender every 90 days for the rest of their life. They can't live by schools and they are supervised more closely. They believe Richard Gilmore is a level three. Tiffany was 13 when he raped her. He stalked her. So if that isn't a level three, what is? Tiffany and Danielle's activism for rape survivors should not go unnoticed. They've dedicated themselves to try to make changes, and they've done some unbelievable things and helped push through several bills. For me, because I didn't get justice in the traditional way, advocacy um, became my justice, which is interesting. And I I think it was always part of God's plan. I just didn't know it uh, to take that platform as Danielle, rape victim. But God's given me the grace to do that. And it's led to, in Oregon, being able to do seven different laws, um, including some different uh, things with the parole board. And one of those being who they look at as a victim. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't happen to anyone again. Uh, But then from Oregon and taking care of our rape kit backlog, and I worked with uh, Joyful Heart Foundation a lot on that. 
And we knew that we were going to be leaving the state in 2016 for a couple of reasons. One of those being Gilmore. And we were moving to Oklahoma. So I knew that my advocacy would not end once I got here to Oklahoma. So my first year here, 2017, the governor here took one of my bills and turned it into an executive order. So we now have uh, the Oklahoma Sexual Assault Task Force that is uh, run through Governor Stitt's office and then the Attorney General's office is where we meet. So that is still ongoing here. I came in to a situation here in Oklahoma where there was nothing happening with rape kits. In fact, they could be destroyed and it wasn't against the law. We've gone from you can't destroy them, we have to keep them for at least 50 years to testing all rape kits. We're still working on our backlog. Uh, we established some victims' rights. So we've been kind of plugging along here and we're, we're still going. We just asked Governor Stitt to renew our task force for another four years because it's just, it, it definitely has taken us longer here in Oklahoma than it did in Oregon. And um, going after the statute of limitations and the next uh, legislative session here in Oklahoma as well. You know, I've I've um, struggled with drugs and alcohol on and off since I was raped. And um, so what I do is uh, I work in the behavioral health field. Um, I help those that are homeless that um, have serious mental illness and or um, co-occurring disorders with drug and alcohol and mental health. Um, and I also started, it's an in-person group because I do not like the Zoom or <laughs> not in-person group for this kind of conversations. But I started Get Your Voice Back, a survivor's women's group. And um, through that group, I have been able to empower women and help um, other survivors um, get their power back and um, kind of face that terror. And I'm telling you, some of the the reason that I started that group was because I sponsor I sponsor probably about ten women in a twelve step program. And with that, I am telling you, every single one of them has had either sexual abuse from the time they were little until they were teenagers by a father, uncle, friend of the family. Um, I work a lot of with women that were um, sex trafficked, um, were held hostage for days on end and sexually raped, attacked, raped, beat. Because I asked God what what do you want me to do? You know, I was the victim's rights advocate, but now what do you want me to do? And he said, I want you to help those that aren't seen. I want you to pour whatever I poured into you and I want you to pour it into them. These two women are amazing and accomplished so much after the terrible trauma that happened to them. If you can, I hope you will join us in making a donation to a rape survivor program of your choice to help support the thousands of people affected by rape on a day-to-day -day basis. We'll be making a donation to the Joyful Heart Foundation and National Crime Victim Law Institute in honor of Tiffany Edens 
Daniel Tudor, and the other victims of Richard Gilmore. All right. Do you have any thoughts? I'm just so angry. I know. It's... I'm angry for them. I'm angry towards him. I'm angry towards the system. I'm sad at our system and how it feels. Those are really horrific survivors. stories. Like really horrific stories. That's. I was just talking to a friend this morning about how like with scary movies or or even documentaries or whatever, it's like, you know, the more the more real it is, that's that's what's scary, mm-hmm. you know, and this is like the ultimate what kid. I mean, even me. Oh, I have alone time and I need to clean the house. Yeah, I'm going to put on some music. I'm going to mm-hmm. dance around to this day. That's like my favorite thing to do. Oh, to myself. OK. And I've always had a fear. Because of embarrassment of having someone. Look in the window. I always close the windows. It's always been something that bothers me. So the idea of this person just like, oh, I'm going to go for a jog and I'm going for a hunt Mm -hmm. and and to violate all those most precious things, to violate looking into my home, to violate coming into my home, to violate my space and to hurt me. And like for him, he's just grabbing what's around. And for her, she's like, well, now my grandmother's blanket. I can't even sit and hold, cuddle I know. my grandmother's blanket. Well, they now. talk about how their parents own those houses. Like one of them still lives in the house and how traumatic that can be. Yeah. Um, they talked about they were both virgins. Like this was their first oh, sexual so encounter. Yeah. And I don't want to say he ruined their life because they got to determine how to live their life right. moving forward. But he definitely shattered who they were at that oh, time. Oh, completely redirected it. And now, you know, luckily they're amazing advocates and they do these wonderful things for people with addiction and for rape survivors. Right. But they shouldn't have had to have done that. You right. know what I mean? Like their lives it's, were yeah, taken it's away. Yeah, it's amazing. Anytime, anytime someone's an advocate, like that's just a real selfless choice Yeah, to do that for their lives. But it's like she wanted to be a dancer. She wanted to be a musical theater. She wanted... Mm-hmm. You know, they had these other plans and to to have that happen at like the most pivotal time of your life, you know, when you're a teenager, when you're growing up. Well, like, and then to come into this legal world of something that you're like, oh, police protect and yeah. lawyers protect and and then realize how hard it is. And yeah. every two years they have to tell their story to a bunch of strangers yeah. every two years. It's on them to keep this man behind bars and to hope that. That's not going to backfire for them to go, oh, well, were you were you wearing a small top? Were you dancing provocative? Oh, my God. The fact that anyone can say, like, let's say a 13 year old is dancing provocatively. It's like, what's your deal? Obscene. It's obscene. Like, how do you think? What are you thinking? They're trying everything. I guess they knew how shitty they had it with this guilty as sin client but yeah yeah, it's it was horrific when she told me that it felt like someone punched me in the stomach I can't believe they would do that and just yeah just all of it just the cops not following through and of course how many let's talk about that how many people do you think are either applying for or are actually cops just to cover their own tracks probably quite a few or just to be in the system so that they know how things work so they can get away with stuff well, And that's like what that. they talked about, that he befriended his neighbor who was a cop and said, oh, I want to be a cop. And he kind of took him under his wing and yeah. was he would like slowly start asking about investigations and the, the techniques they do. And yeah. that's so concerning. Like we are very lucky they caught him 
so close to that. Yeah. He could have been accepted and then been in power. And the and the ladies talk about that. Like, imagine if he were he was pulling over women. Oh, we hear that all the time. The cop pulled me over and either put put me in the back seat or took me to the jail mm-hmm. or did whatever or threatened the power dynamic. Oh, well, do you want a ticket or do you want to pay it off other ways? You know, it's like, yeah, if he had been in that position, which people like him are. And oh, oh, you've made me so upset. I know. Well, I can change the subject real quick. You might have caught in uh, Danielle's interview. She mentioned that there was no 911 yet. And when she said that, I was taken aback because as a child of the 80s and 90s, I never really thought about it. Yeah. So I looked into it a little bit. And um, apparently 911 was invented by AT&T. And in 1981, the state of Oregon established a legislature to put it in place throughout the entire state. Uh-huh. And by 1991, Oregon was only the sixth state to have 911 border to border. Wow. Isn't that crazy? That wasn't that long ago. No. So I thought that was a, a little good trivia for yeah. the to kind of. And it probably uh, took a little while. I mean, not that Troutdale and Gresham, not that we're that. Oh, it took a donkey, but no, it's the eastern Oregon. It was hard to get out to those more rural areas. Yeah, but yeah, I was like, wow, I never really thought about that. So then I started spiraling down the history of nine one one, and I won't bore you with it here, but check it out (laughs) if you like that kind of stuff. I was thinking too, like um, how the operator or the person at the police station, how they're like, no, he's not coming back. No, he's not going to get you. Especially, and it's like because even then they were like strangers don't just come into your house and attack you but especially that was peak rapist time in this area we had several serial killers who rape was part of their mo yeah i was kind of surprised by that but then it gets worse when you start thinking about danielle was the third girl in her neighborhood to get raped (sighs) by the same guy she had no idea those other two rapes took place. Nobody knew. They weren't right. talking about it. It wasn't on the news. You can't find articles about it right. at all. I tried to look up serial rapists, Eastern Port- East Portland, 1979. Anything, yeah. Nothing. Nothing came up. So wow. they were totally unaware. And they both talked about their their feeling of safety in their neighborhoods and how Danielle would go running by herself on the, on the hill and just never thought about that yeah. kind of thing. So there was this, um, you know, just the safety they thought they had in their neighborhoods because nobody was communicating about it. Wow. Is that that was hard to hear, but I really appreciate them. They're amazing women. If you are interested in hearing the full-length interview, it is two hours because they were so fantastic. You can catch it on our Patreon. So Patreon at any level will get access. So um maybe go do that. Even if it's for a month, hey, why not? At one point you said that they thought he was possibly responsible for like dozens to and dozens a, up to a hundred what was there a reason behind that or they just kind of did the math of like well he did this many in this uh yeah chunk I, of time i think they were looking at a couple of things the neighborhoods the mo the fact that they were really similar at breaking in attacking girls and women of similar ages um in clusters and neighborhoods yeah i'm not sure they were able to link him to any of them but even if they had the statute of limitations would have been in yeah. place so I well, think well and they only got him with that one because of the fingerprint on the bulb so yeah. like even if there hadn't been a statute it's like what you know you didn't have DNA you didn't have security cameras everywhere yep yep wow 
So we were quite lucky that they stopped him because everyone believes he would have escalated. And that's what people are worried about, that if he gets out and he does it again, he won't leave a survivor behind. He will likely kill. Well, I got to go call the governor real quick. I'll see you there at the phone booth. (laughs) Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough. Edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls.